Welcome to Single-Minded Conversations. I'm your host, Jesse Single. I am a uh, journalist and a podcaster. Uh, just I'm just some dude, basically. So if you're new to this, I hope you'll check out the back catalog. This is, I think, our 10th or 11th episode. Uh, I'm pretty happy with how this has gone so far. It's a really cool format with the calls. It's new to me. I've settled into this rhythm of like just giving sort of a mini talk about something and then taking questions. That's what I'm going to do here. Um, I do want to work in more guests, which I'm also going to try to do uh, in weeks to come, particularly the new year. I've, I've been on the road most of this month now, and it makes it harder to schedule guests. But uh, today we're going to talk about uh, revising the First Amendment. I see someone's already in the queue. Uh, I'll get to questions in a bit if you have one, just as soon as you think of it, join the queue. But um, I've written a little bit in the past about how there's some folks who think that the U.S. is basically on the wrong track when it comes to our very liberal free speech laws. And especially in the age of sort of rampant internet misinformation and online trolling and harassment and so on, there's been a growing sense among many progressives that something needs to be done. I'd say that that might be the majority view among journalists uh, at the moment, although I don't think there's sort of good polling on that. But you see more people saying that something needs to be done about free speech than saying, no, that's, that's silly. And a couple times I've written about uh, – these were articles on New York Magazine's website in 2017 and 2019. I basically just pointed out that the people expressing this view often have very silly suggestions that would have very clear downsides that they don't really grapple with. So I'll link to all this in the show notes. But in one piece I critiqued, a left-wing academic uh, said that if a group of left-wing students shouts down a campus speaker, that's fine because that's free speech too. I forget if he said left-wing students in general, but that's what he's referring to. This professor did not say whether he'd be okay with, for example, Christian conservative students getting an event canceled by shouting down a pro-reproductive rights speaker. And it seems obvious to me that he he wouldn't be okay with that. Uh, So he's just sort of – what a lot of these guys are doing are suggesting rules that would only really apply to one side but not the other. And I I think content neutrality is important if we're going to talk about free speech in as – complicated and divided a country as ours. In another piece, a journalist suggested that to fight some of the pernicious influences of Facebook and Twitter, the government should set up its own competing social media platform, sort of a public option. But if you're worried about harmful content and you want to clamp down on it, and I'm not saying that's my view, any government-run institution, you're going to have a much harder time moderating or censoring content because public institutions need to adhere to the First Amendment in a way private ones don't. So that's just another example of people making suggestions that might sound good or feel satisfying, but which in the real world would would very quickly fall apart. I was reminded of these and other examples of of half-baked anti-free speech proposals earlier this week when the Boston Globe's idea section, which is consistently excellent and does really good and thought-provoking stuff, ran a package about potentially editing the Constitution. So in it, uh, Mary Ann Franks, who's a constitutional scholar at the University of Miami, complained that at present, the First Amendment is not a model, is not, quote, a model of clarity or precision, and that as a result, quote, the most powerful members of society uh, tend to reap the benefits of these constitutional rights at the expense of vulnerable groups. This is something you hear a lot, that free speech or the First Amendment benefit the powerful at the expense of the powerlessness, powerless. Here's the rewrite of the First Amendment she offers as an alternative. 
Oh, and I should say she also has some stuff to say about the Second Amendment that I'm just ignoring because that's I'm not as interested in that. Here's her proposed rewritten First Amendment. Every person has the right to freedom of expression, association, peaceful assembly, and petition of the government for redress of grievances consistent with the rights of others to the same and subject to responsibility for abuses. All conflicts of such rights shall be resolved in accordance with the principle of equality and dignity of all persons. Both the freedom of religion and the freedom from from religion shall be respected by the government. The government may not single out any religion for interference or endorsement, nor may it force any person to accept or adhere to any religious belief or practice. Um, I'm going to wrap this up shortly. I do want to just quickly focus on that clause consistent with the rights of others to the same and subject to responsibility for abuses. What's strange about this is that Franks in one breath complains about the First Amendment being too vague and working to the benefit of the powerful – And then in the next, she offers an alternative, which explicitly lays out that people will be, quote, subject to responsibility for abuses. Can you imagine a better way to open the door to government abuses than to say, yeah, you have free speech, but you're responsible for abuses without defining what abuses are? I I feel like this is such an obvious point. I don't even need to lay it out fully or provide examples, but take anti-war rhetoric. It is constantly derided as harmful by pro-war folks. Whenever there's a war effort or people want to go to war, Anti-war folks are told they're hurting America or they're hurting the troops. With a First Amendment like this, the government could be like, well, that's abusive speech. It says so right there in the Constitution. So I guess we can't have anti-war protests. If you had a First Amendment with these rules, anti-war folks would be screwed pretty quickly, as would anyone with a uh, controversial enough view that someone somewhere in power decides it's abusive. I'll leave it at that to get to your questions, but I I think it should tell us something that no one who wants to tighten up our free speech laws and norms can come up with a coherent way to do so that wouldn't have massive, rather obvious downsides or which just wouldn't hurt the left. And I say that because the people who want to tighten up free speech tend to be on the left. Okay, uh, get in line if you have questions. We will start with Nick. Go ahead, Nick. Nick, you're going to want to uh, unmute yourself. Hey, Jesse. Hey, Nick. How's it going? How are we doing? Um, sorry to derail here. I'm going to practice my free speech here. Can I get a score prediction? As long as it's not abusive. No, it's not abusive. We might be abusing the Colts tonight. Can I get a score prediction <laughs> on Patriots-Colts? It's a big one. Um, I am very excited about the Patriots because they're doing so well. So I, I can't give you a realistic, unbiased one. I'm going to go ahead and say 27-17. What do you think? I like it. Uh, I mean, they, they're they missing their center, Ryan Kelly. I think if we don't give up the home run ball to Jonathan Taylor, we're going to be just fine. I want a big game from Mac. Yeah. I'm, I'm very grateful that we get to play such a meaningful game uh, late in the season. Anything else? I would I could talk Pats with you all day, but I don't want to lose all my subscribers. No, I'm sorry. I'll, I'll let you go. Thanks. So- <laughs> Thank you, Nick. Uh, Gabby, what is up? Hi, hi, Shalom, Jesse. It's Gabby Abramov. How's it going? Your old friend, aka Bromsky, calling you from Tel Aviv. I think this topic is very important, my friend. I've taught in universities for 30 years in the U.S. I'm teaching here now in the Jewish state. We don't have the First Amendment here, but we're getting wokeness, to my chagrin, in uh, amongst the graduate students. Um. I've seen what I'm trying to report is something you're familiar with is so much um, constraint of free speech in places where you would expect to see it the most like universities who 
govern their free speech the way this, um, whatever it was you were outlining earlier suggests. Oh yeah, free speech, but don't say the wrong thing and don't hurt anyone and don't say anything outside these various kind of constraints and norms and it's death. I mean, you know, there are surveys, you know, this better than me. You probably told me this on your podcast about how afraid college students are to talk in college. Now I thought that was just the U S but I talked to a friend here who's done a survey here. It's coming to Israel. I suppose it's going around the world amongst the sort of civilized sectors of society, but these other places don't have our first amendment, which I thank God for. Uh, as an American, um, cling to that First Amendment, I, I, I think. But I want to ask you, um, what what other alternative is there when they when they try to re- rewrite these things and put in all these little clauses? You just it means you get tangled up with dumb fuck bureaucrats, HR type people. I got in trouble for teaching Oedipus by Sophocles. They said I was advocating um, incest. It took a month of my life to deal with that. I had to get fire and Greg Luke enough to defend me. It was absurd. But they said you, you were you were pro, because you taught Oedipus. You were pro incest. Yeah, that's yeah. really crazy. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think the uh, the easiest answer is to just draw attention to those excesses and those crazy incidents. And I think Fire does a good job of that. And I. Definitely think there's been an upsurge of them lately. And um, I think the average person, when they encounter a story like that, will understand that it's incredibly messed up. Yeah, let's hope. I had to agree to take Camille Paglia off the syllabus. That was the compromise. Fire, in the end, told my university they were not behaving well. We're ranked at the bottom for free speech where I teach. I won't name the place. But I got so much help from them and other organizations but I did have to compromise because, you know, Palia does say, if you look at her early book, Sexual Persona, she talks about rape in ways that we don't typically now, us nice, yeah. Jewish guys like you and me. But she's an anthropologist. She's a scholar. I mean, you've read her work. I had to remove it because also practically, maybe you can imagine, I guess, I don't know when you, if you've taught in the university, but like 18-year-old kids today will not sit there and read somebody who says... Well, I don't want to paraphrase her now, but that, like in myth, like scenes of rape are complicated, right? Yeah, uh, I, I can't even say that out loud here without feeling a little uncomfortable. Yeah, man, I, I can't imagine being a professor under these situations, but I'm glad you had um, fire had your back. And I, I just think the key thing to do is to tell people this stuff is going on, but um, yeah, thank you for uh, for the call, Yabby. All right, I'm, I'm glad that Katie has your back. <laughs> yes, it's very helpful. Thanks, man. <laughs> and Morden, what is up? Hello, can you hear me? I can hear you, yes. One of the things about the free speech uh, controversy or the sudden controversy around free speech that I've noticed is that there's a certain, there's an inbuilt classism to it, at least in a lot of corporate spaces that lean left. And I'm certainly in one of those. Um, and the protections that people are seeking in these spaces from what they would classify or attempt to reclassify as violence are generally from sources of speech that come from the right, right? Politically uncomfortable content to them specifically, to their category. Um, And then also the speech of the poor and working class, because I honestly feel having grown up in a pretty working class environment, 
uh, and my family essentially being working class adjacent itself, like everybody was on the way out of either a rural existence or a strictly urban existence, right? Slowly moving into education and, and right. uh, they've been moving, moving on up, right? That's <laughs> the story of my family. Um, but what I'm noticing is that the speech of the poor and working class in particular is impossible in these corporate spaces uh, and that they use language in a very different way. They use language as a tool and the places that I exist now, these corporate places, language is almost like an environment to them, uh, something that's exacerbated by social media and their constant um, they're socializing in places that are made in, entirely of language, right? They're not even in yeah. a room with somebody. And they can uh, self-segregate ideologically. There is a classist component of this. Now, what, this is my question piece of it, or at least this is something I'm trying to work out that I could use advice on. I'm at the point of being comfortable calling that out. Uh, because I live in an environment that is yeah. not strictly, like, the, the place I live, huge working class community, not strictly left or right. And all of them, of the left or the right, uh, would be fired for speaking as plainly as they do if they were in a corporate setting because of the rigid etiquette around right. speech. Uh, and I'm willing to start calling that out as classism and talking about that at my office. I'm kind of crossing that line or, or getting close to it. But now I'm worried about becoming a kind of a crusader of my own. I'm, I'm afraid of becoming, you know, a, a social justice warrior of my own home group, yeah. you know, social justice more. Well, so give me just one, tell me, answer the question. Give me like a concrete example of something that you think a working class person might say that they could get in trouble for. Well, this is, this is one that's a little almost too specific. Well, first of all, in my neighborhood, the N-word is spoken all the time, right? Uh, I live in a neighborhood with a lot of African-American citizens, and they are not, uh, they don't consider it impolite at all. It's totally casual to say this. Uh, that would be bad yeah. enough. The one circumstance I think of is I remember distinctly that there was a time someone from the mailroom complimented one of the female employees uh, in a way that was not. I didn't find it leering, but I definitely found it out of step with the Me Too etiquette, right? For him to even comment on yeah. her appearance. And thank God, I think she recognized this is not something I should, this is not a hill I should climb on, nor is it a hill I should die on. But there was an, there was an yeah. instant moment of discomfort, right, where an etiquette had been breached uh, that is supposed to protect women, but also uh, creates almost like an impossible barrier for someone who hasn't stayed up on what you do and don't do in a modern bougie office and what is considered violence now. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, no, it's really hard. I mean, I think the it's complicated because I think the people do. I'm going to mute you for a sec, but I'll, I'll let you back in. Just, um, or if you can mute yourself, oh, yeah, just yeah, yeah, the car noises. <clears throat> um, I, that's definitely true. I, I think that there's a subset of people who, some of them, it's just a way to exert control over others. That constantly changing what language you can use and what language you can't is a way of exerting control over others. For some people, they really do think that if we could just use the right words and enact the right etiquette, all the world's injustice would melt away. On top of that, there's the problem that until fairly recently, there was a lot of sexual harassment in a lot of workplaces. And some of this has been a response to that. So I think 
I, I don't think you're going to become a crusader, but I think when you find those edge case examples that are really wacky and you need to be careful here because in some cases the new rules are good, you just need to point out that like, is is this a workplace that would be welcoming to people from different backgrounds and different education levels? And I think the response you'll often get is like, either oh you, well you're saying people with less education are racist and sexist uh so you need to be prepared for that bad faith response but it is a type of inclusivity problem when you need a fairly elaborate code of etiquette uh just to sort of get by in the workplace and i've noticed this too that the rules are pretty complicated um is that sort of what you're getting at yeah definitely a sense of that that you almost have to have a part-time job keeping up on which words are and aren't spoken because there are many more examples of people you know in management positions who don't spend a huge amount of time on twitter uh accidentally saying low on the totem pole you know what i mean yeah <laughs> let's powwow I, and it's like oh you didn't get the memo but well not i mean the memo not, takes a lot of time to get the memo takes you know extra time and willingness to steep yourself in this etiquette yeah, and and not just things like totem pole, where you can at least I dis I think I think words the word like totem pole is fine the same way I'm Jewish and I think it's fine to use kosher to not refer to food but but to something being okay adequate wise. Um, I mean, I do think especially in universities, like some of the trainings, it really goes beyond that, and they'll tell you that saying America is a melting pot is a microaggression or or stuff like that, and. I don't know how wide, I mean, the trainings are widespread. I don't know how often it's enforced, but we're definitely moving in that direction. It's basically just people who have a very specific, narrow set of political beliefs trying to impose them on others. And there's, I think you're right to um, highlight the class component of that. But um, thank you, Morton. I appreciate the call. Jim, what's up? Hey, Jesse, what's up, man? How's it going? Jim, dude. Um, I got a question about uh, the fifth column. Um, if yes, if uh, Black the Reported is like the sister podcast to uh, Fifth Column, does that does that make this like the cousin podcast to that, or what's the relationship? Yeah, it's some sort of like incestuous, like very um, not necessarily legal arrangement. It's like a, basically a second cousin you have sex with. That's what this podcast is. Gen- gender nonconforming siblings. Exactly. Yeah. Well, so uh, on the la- the latest episode of uh, Fifth Column, they had uh, Pete Meyer on, who's the... I just started listening to this during a... Oh, yeah, really good. Um, but yeah, so he one of the things he talks about was how he's kind of... He was shocked by how short-sighted all the other like lawmakers he's <laughs> working with are. And it, it kind of goes back to your little preamble at the start of like, these people don't understand, like they can't see any farther into the future than like a couple of years. Like what's going on that everybody's, whether it's reporters or lawmakers, like why is everybody so short-sighted? And then what do we do about that? So I haven't got into this part in particular. I I left off at the part where he just talked about the weird dynamics of hosting town hall meetings, um, you know, with folks who think the election was stolen and stuff. But is he referring to this response to January 6th or what? Yeah, there's, well, there's some stuff about January 6th. Um, yeah, there's, it, it's a lot of January 6th. I think they get into some other stuff, too. I, I don't remember specifically what the context was, but but his big point was, like, they were asking kind of what, what he was most surprised about or what he didn't expect when he got into Congress. Gotcha. And he kind of said that, like, 
these people can only plan like you know for what's in front of them basically i mean if you had to get reelected into a gerrymandered district every two years and, and you heard most loudly from your angriest constituents i i think the incentives are pretty bad um yeah, I mean, isn't the answer just that a lot of members of Congress, like a lot of people, don't really have principles? I mean, you you sort of you see a lot of that, and it's frustrating. I think it's part of the reason for sort of like the chaos going on now, right? No, I I definitely agree. But like, where I guess was it always this bad, or like was it always? Why has it gotten? It yeah. seems like it's gotten worse, and there's no like easy cure for this right now. Yeah, well, I think there's definitely more polar. I mean, this is, uh, I think, fairly obvious political science point, just that there's way more polarization. And I also do think that on top of all the other things driving us apart, it is undeniably the case that if you're a Republican member of Congress, with a few exceptions like like this guy who went on the fifth column, you have to line up lockstep with Trump and with what Trump wants. And I think that makes it very hard for the party to move forward because they're sort of anchored to this very big presence with a lot of gravity who is a little bit crazy and who doesn't really have coherent political views himself. So I think um, I I criticize certain aspects of the left because they affect me directly or they affect my friends directly. And I think they make the left weaker, but I I think, and I'm I'm not saying both sides don't do the myopic thing. I think there's a lot of that, but I I think the Republican party is in such a, it's weird because they're in a crappy situation, but because of, of the structure of how elections work, they could still be in power despite having, no real core and despite still being tethered to Trump, it's just, yeah, I feel like I'm remedy a little cause I don't have an easy answer. I, I just think um, it's a, a really difficult time for politics and I see very little reason for hope. No, I, I agree. It's, it's definitely hard. But, yeah. uh, I appreciate you doing this, man. Thank you, Jim. Thank you for the call. Sorry. I didn't give a, a more coherent answer. Chewy ask me an easy question, like my favorite food or something. I, I can uh, provide a pithy answer to. Yeah, that's going to happen. <laughs> um, I, so, okay. I have three very short comments on the question. One, I wish I had known that you were going to be here in DC. So I could have been there to experience that very elegant night you had at Sully's. <laughs> Extremely elegant. Yeah, that's what it was. Uh, two is that um, I almost actually supported this revision of the, um, First Amendment, once I heard that disgusting heterosexual football speech, never do that again. That is abusive. Clearly <laughs> abusive. Yeah. Um, Sorry three, about that. Um, to do better. Do better. That, that ain't it, Chief. Um, I, I wanted to make a, a, a quick comment on Immortan's um, sort of questions and points, which is just like a uh, a caution to not valorize the working class, right? Like I grew up queer in, in tiny little small town, Idaho in the nineties and late two thousands. And I basically fled the state and it's all working class people, you know? And I like, I actually, I agree with a lot of what he's saying, but let us not go too far into just valorizing the working class because there are a lot of shitty, awful, racist, homophobic, terrible, people, yeah. you know? So it's just, it's just like a, point to keep in your mind that both of those things can be. No, I, I, I mean, Morton is, is, is sort of a regular caller. I'd love to hear him um, maybe next episode yeah. circle back to this, yeah, but sure. I, I think what you're saying is totally fair, and um, I think there are obviously different conversational norms and sort of social mores in a the back of an auto mechanic shop than in a sort of mm. more white-collar corporate setting, and I think in some cases I would prefer the latter. That might make me elitist, but I I do think that 
call, you know, college educated people are some of the, the stuff that we internalize the social codes. Some of them are there for a reason and are good that I'm not going to valorize uh, the middle class or the upper class that we have our, our own problems and our own pathology, some of which we're now trying to impose on others. But no, I think, sure. I think your point is well taken, especially if you're gay wow. in a mostly straight place or, or I, I think there's probably more anti-Semitism as a Jew in some working class places, although it varies from place to place. So I, I think that's a really good point. And it's yeah. about finding a balance between. Yeah. 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 Yeah, exactly. Because I mean, the reality is that it's not just the language they're using, and what the language they're using is often indicative for people in those spaces um, about the safety that they can feel around them. Um, yeah, it's a very personal experience, right? There, there was a controversy in like 2013 or 2014 where a woman filmed herself walking around New York getting catcalled, and at the first wave of response was like, mm. "This shows how hard it is to be a war- woman. You're getting catcalled." The second wave of response was she. Uh, Either she edited it this way or this was what happened. She got catcalled more in working class neighborhoods. And in New York, that means more in black and Latino mm-hmm. neighborhoods. And mm-hmm. um, that's one of those things where where I I do think women probably get caught called more in any working class neighborhoods than in wealthy neighborhoods. And that's – I don't know. I think that's probably the yeah. case. I think it's more a class thing than a racial thing. But I think that's difficult to yeah. talk about. And I yeah. think that's an example of what, what yeah. you're saying is why I brought it up. Yeah. No, that's right. Yeah, totally. And then, okay, question. The actual question. So I, I wonder if you've ever thought much about how much sort of the current crazy, not craziness, but it's just like the, 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 the illnesses of the left. Um, and I say illnesses because I was just reading an article by Wright Chexera, who's the author of the like emerging democratic majority theory. Yeah. Um, whether mo- like a good chunk of it can really just be traced back to the fact that Facebook exists, right? Like there's plenty of people who have plenty of crazy thoughts, but then Facebook made them all sort of public and I wonder if, like, quite frankly, a lot of our ills on the left come from the fact that fucking Facebook exists and there's just a deep incestuous, like, you know, rolling back and forth on Facebook of, of, of like, language and shit. Which my only, like, counterpoint that I can think of to that is that there was also, like, a political correctness, you know, outrage in the 90s that may be a, a point against that. But I wonder if you've thought about that. Yeah, I mean, I, I think living in an age where everyone can express an opinion and get feedback for it. Uh, it turns out it is not some great virtuous democratizing force. I think it, it maybe reveals a lot of stuff that would be better not trivial. Um, in the, I forget what it was. I think in the eighties, Richard Vigory is this uh, legendary figure on the right because he, he pioneered the direct mail movement. And that was sort of oh, the yeah. equivalent. In some cases, the, the direct mail newsletters were like the, the Breitbart of the time or the OAN or Newsmax. And, um, when you just think how much harder it was to see and spread those views now versus how quickly people can just fall down conspiratorial wormholes, I, I think it's much worse. I, and I think this applies on both sides. But then the other part of me, as someone who writes about social science, I think you need to be careful about causality. It could be people who are already uh-huh. fairly brain addled and melted um, and would have been otherwise are drawn in further by social media or appear to be. I do think it has a causal impact because I just think our brains aren't meant to have all this information shooting at us at all hours. Yeah. And, and I guess I, th- I think like, and, and, and uh, I think that I'm thinking like the, by when I say that the ills of left, I think it's impact on political outcomes, mostly is sort of what I'm thinking about. Oh, yeah. right? Like people, people have these things, they have these ridiculous ideas. Right. Um, and, and like where, where would abolish the police be if not for Twitter? Stupid shit. You know? Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I think yes, Twitter, 
fuel, especially not just Facebook, Twitter, if you're in like the political class or the journalism class. Yep. Yeah, no, I, I agree completely with that. Yeah. Cool. Thank you. Right. Thanks. Steven, what is up? Hey, can you hear me? Awesome. I can. Long time, first time. Um, I want to go back to the uh, opening statement that you made where you uh, mentioned how that rewrite of the proposed rewrite of the First Amendment had some really obvious unintended consequences if you just think about it for two minutes. Um, and I'm wondering, uh, two questions. One is, that seemed to be, um, I forget the, the author of that, but it seemed to be kind of another example from the left side of a knee-jerk proposition to get rid of something they don't like with obvious unintended consequences that anyone on the left or right could see if they thought about it. Um, I would say yeah. on the right side, the knee-jerk CRT bans uh, are similar. Oh my God, yeah, that's a <laughs> right? perfect counterexample. Yeah, exactly. And so my two questions, one is, do you generally see this lack of just thinking up, thinking about the dominoes that will fall on the left or the right? Is it more common in one way or the other? And whether it's more common on the left or right, what is it about these politically engaged, smart people that they just don't see that? Or do they see it and just ignore it? Yeah, um, I think it probably manifests in different ways on both sides. I mean, I mean I, I've been following some of the – I've said before, I was very disturbed by the January 6th riots, insurrection, whatever you want to call it. I don't, I don't know the language to use because, first of all, people will yell at you if you're using the wrong word. But like to me, insurrections – it's a little bit problematic because there are countries where there are actual insurrections that topple the government, and there was literally no chance of that happening here. So I just don't want to cheapen it. But um, either way, some of the some of the liberal responses to that is to give the government massive amounts of power to um, both in the case of like the the protesters who were dumb and crazy and went into the capital but didn't really do anything when they were there, and some of the the higher up figures mm-hmm. who are now been called like the plotters but there's no real evidence they did anything illegal other than spread well spreading stop the steel rumors is not illegal so liberals who spent four years very scared of the possibility of the federal government falling into the hands of trumpian people are now seem pretty okay with like what feel like instances of overreach so i basically think that when a Mm -hmm. cultural or political group senses some threat to their values and what could be a bigger threat to your values than having an election you want taken from you our brains just go a little bit crazy and we lash out in ways that might feel right at the moment. Um, and I, I think both sides do that. And the CRT thing is a really good example because a lot of people, it's a complicated mix of parents not knowing exactly what their kids are taught and often responding to teacher trainings. And the teacher trainings are, are garbage and I've written about them, but it isn't quite the case that their kids are like every day being exposed mm-hmm. to CRT and and you end up with these ridiculous bands that lead to like in texas long lists of books that and they're going to investigate it and make sure the libraries don't have these books so yeah i I think the basic formula is a threat to a group's values i probably sound a little like john height now which is not a bad thing a a threat to the group's values and then because of in-group dynamics and online dynamics the threat feels worse and worse and worse and it feels almost existential to the group's values and you know, if you if you have that siege mentality of my group is being attacked, you're going to propose some pretty dumb shit, probably. Does that make sense? As a general, off the totally makes theory? sense. Thanks. Yeah, great. <laughs> Thank you. Hey, Stephen. Appreciate it. Bye. Kurt, what is up, Kurt?
I'm having a weird tech issue. Give me a thumbs up if you guys can hear me. All right, I guess I'm um, assuming it's still recording. I guess I'll have to wrap up early. Um, this is the first sort of tech problem. Pause.